consider it and uh, God, God will put it in your ears. Sitting at Feast of Tabernacles, the sixth day of God's Feast of Tabernacles. And to start out today, I'd like to just pose a question. Why do we even gather together? You know, to answer this question, when you think of the idea of the Feast of Tabernacles, all the things associated with that, past, present,
and delivers them out of this bondage and he leads them towards this land and gives them a promise of a new land, a land that belongs to them, a land that their forefathers set years before them. And he brings them out of Egypt into the wilderness with this idea, this promise lingering that he would bring them to this new land flowing with milk and honey. He brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. In Exodus, the 19th chapter, right before we see Exodus 20, as giving of the law and the trembling of the mountain and the scared people and the majesty and glory of God being displayed among all of them. And Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6, we see this. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. Above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. But the distinguishing factor of Israel as the chosen nation of God would not just be them being delivered. It would not just then be them being given a covenant. It would not just be them obtaining the promised land. One of the key components of all of this is the fact that God would dwell among them. That was the distinguishing mark of the children of Israel. That would be the true proof that Israel was indeed the chosen of all the nations on the earth. God establishes a covenant with Israel. He gives them plans to construct the ark symbol of His presence, His dwelling among them. Construction for the tabernacle. Exodus, the 29th chapter, verses 43 through 46 says, And there, speaking of this constructed tabernacle that they're getting ready to construct eventually, I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory, for I will consecrate the tabernacle and the altar. I will also consecrate both Aaron and his sons to minister to me. As priests, I will dwell among the people, among the children of Israel, and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of God, not just delivering them from bondage, not just giving them the covenant, not just promising them this land flowing with milk and honey, but this picture that God would go with them, that He would be in their midst. And then we come to Exodus 33. All of this becomes a promise. This promise, this idea that distinguishing mark of God dwelling with the people becomes reality. Now, we're not going to read all of Exodus, the 32nd chapter, Exodus 32, because my primary focus today is to focus on Exodus 33. 
and we have to trust the story of it. We trust the story of what Israel has came out of Egypt, got into this trouble. Moses is on Mount Sinai. God tells them of these plans of dwelling with them in their midst, of construction of a tabernacle, a house, a dwelling place that he would dwell among them. But Exodus 32, All of these plans into jeopardy because Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and down below, we know the story, the people start to be discontent. They wonder about this man Moses who brought them out of the land of Egypt, who, who through him God had been mediating for them. And they now look to another one. They look to Aaron. And they tell Aaron essentially, We have no idea where this Moses is. You're our new leader. Make us a God. that they all give their earrings, their ornaments to Aaron, and mulch it down in a graven molten image of a cow that they create. And in Exodus, the 32nd chapter, verse 4, Aaron says, This is your God, talking to this pagan God, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And from this point forward, we see a See that God tells Moses, you need to get down off this mountain because your brother and your people, your people, are playing the harlot. And Moses comes down and says, and Aaron's like, hey, you know how these people are. They're bent on evil. What is that? I mean, they, have, have you ever seen Have you seen that? Just this face face coming to God. And God's anger burns. It burns so bad that he is almost bent on destroying Israel altogether and starting over with Moses. This caused disaster for Israel. It would bring plagues upon Israel. And just today, 3,000 Jews are killed in Gaza and the Jordan because of this blatant idolatry. But the real tragedy would be revealed when we talk about the Exodus coming to pass. Because Israel had already broken the covenant, starting in Exodus 33, we see the consequences of this. It's a serious act of idolatry that they committed. They just agreed to this covenant. Literally, Moses is carrying with them the Ten Commandments of two tablets of stone. When he comes off the mountain, we see what they're doing. And the consequence of this would be God removing his presence from Israel. Verse 1 through 3 of Exodus, the 33rd chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go from here, you and the people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, Your descendants I will give this land. Okay, that doesn't sound too bad. That sounds kind of normal. We've heard that before. But verse 2, And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Levites and the Jebusites. Again, sounds familiar. Okay, not too bad yet. But here we have verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up and you with you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. In verse 3, we see an 
different tongue that we have seen in this time. Then God describes it to them. We see that God says, I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. You are a stiff Interesting phrase, right? Yeah, stiff neck preaching. Stiff neck to the modern 21st century you know, ear. That might sound kind of strange. Well, it's a common description, especially at this time of year, because it described an act or a force that whenever you pulled the rope on its back, it wouldn't bind. And so Israel's being essentially a social or Try to say the tribe of a stubborn nation. And we see that even later, this metaphor is used even in the New Testament when Stephen, in the book of Acts in chapter 7, is talking to the religious leaders. He calls them a stiff neck. Now, there's a few things that kind of meet the eye. What doesn't meet the eye, in my opinion, when you first read these first three verses? But I think show two ways that we see that God holds back. The first way is how God words the phrase, and you must notice, when Hickey, Moses, and the people of Israel took notice of the little knot, how God says, the people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. It is Moses. The people that you brought out of the land of Egypt, referring to Moses as the one who brought the children out of Egypt. second way is in what he says regarding the angel. I will send my angel. Now, this is amazing news. Exodus, the 30, or the 23rd chapter, verse 30 to 21, said that God would send his angel before them to drive out the, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all those people that occupy the land. But the difference is, when we read that, we see that that angel is described as my name there's something a little bit different. The tune is different. It's almost as if, because we know God said, I will not go with you, my angel will go, but the tune, the phrase, the tune is the tune of the word Kadush. They just go to Canaan to drive out the The angel of no way doesn't indicate that this angel's purpose was to be a representation of God's presence here with and so we can see this how the people take notice of these things because we see the response of the people in the next few verses. Let's read on in verses four through six. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said, had said to Moses. Say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked I could come up in your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by my hand. 
where we see one of the first acts that Israel responds, or the first acts that Israel does to respond to this bad news was to strip themselves of their sign of mourning of their ornaments. And this word ornament is the Hebrew word that refers to fine gold or jasper. And this would be a sign of their mourning and repentance. And it's interesting how these ornaments, just like we saw in chapter 32, and we didn't read it, but we read the story, ornaments were what were given to families to mourn the death of their Their finest ornaments. Their jewelry. All manner of gold. Probably got them from their family wealth. And we see that from this point forward, as it says, from Mount Horeb onward, they put away their ornaments. Now, that pops up here and there in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament where ornaments, these fine jewels or these, 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 these objects become associated with the Babylonians. And so they wandered for a little while into the promised land and Judges the 8th chapter and you read the story of Gideon with the Midianites and they take the spoils of the Midianites and Gideon makes an ephod out of it and we see that verse 27 of Judges the eighth chapter. He says, Israel slayed the harlot with the oil that was in the horn of Gideon's house. So all the way throughout the old Old Testament, Jewish prophecy, we see this idea of ornaments associated with idolatry, even to the very end of our Bible in Revelation, the book of John, chapter 24, that phrase, arrayed, talking about the harlot under Revelation 21, she is arrayed in purple scarlet and adorned with gold and Having in her hand a golden, golden cup filled with spices, silver, and And so it's only natural that one of the things, of course, we know it wasn't the ornament itself that was mentioned, but it was the ideas associated with it. It was the uh, the power that that they mentally tried to attribute to this false. Another response of God, and we, another response that we see of the people really is something that Moses does, and that is God moving Himself away from Israel through Moses leaving the tent, not the tabernacle. We'll get to that in a minute. But His tabernacle is not constructed there outside, far from the tent. Verse seven through eleven of Exodus thirty-three. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the tent. Far from the camp, called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone to the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of God ascended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and stood before it. Each man stood in the door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face, and the man ceased to ascend. And he would return to the tent of the servant of God, which was in the camp, a young man and not a young man. Although we know that the tabernacle. 
tabernacle, the one that was bigger that they take up and down, has not been constructed yet. Right here, to this time of year, before the actual tabernacle, they would have been. They came in and spent a few weeks on the hill, but most of the Christmas time they would be set up in this high consumption connection that way of the tabernacle of the congregation. And the fact that Moses moved his tent outside the camp is at the end of this time Selected. If that is the case, God, if that is the case, 
tell me what you are going to do in it. You know me by name. You are personally connected to me. The vital signs rest favor in your side. Consider this nation. That is your nation. Consider this nation. Consider that you are favored on it. Consider the fact that you No questions fired on Sunday. I will be on schedule for Sunday morning. Nobody was left to any conflict. Of course, it's going to be a peace of mind, a security of mind, and the literal security of God protecting them before the nations of the world, before those nations that they're getting ready to have to go against. That God will fight against them, that God will put their enemies down, and that their kingdoms, that they just came out of slavery. And it wasn't that hard for people groups to go out and about during this time of age and be conquered by someone, and now you're enslaved to them. But God is assuring them that the presence will go with them no matter what, that the freedom will remain intact, the promise that was given to them. But here's the third lesson. Here's the third lesson on how to read verse 14 and the response of Moses. Because when we read the next few verses, we're going to see that it's almost as if that Moses refuses the offer of God. You can almost interpret Moses, and we're going to read it, that Moses was not satisfied with God's response of giving him, him alone, the current of his presence. Moses refuses to separate himself from the people of Israel. He pleads with God, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, let my people, let your people also be delivered. Let your presence also be with them. Verse 15. Here's his response. Then he said to him, Your presence does not go with us. Except you will go with us, so we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. Now, as I mentioned earlier to Moses, that if he experienced that Israel having God's divine favor, them being the people of God, was not just because God had entered the covenant with them, was not just because God delivered them from the the leading them to this journey to fulfill a promise that he made to their forefathers, but rather was that they dwelt among the God, that their God dwelt among them. As Deuteronomy would later say in chapter 4, verse 7, for what great nation is this that there has, that there, for what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? 
what are we reaping and what it costs to plant what seed? So when Moses is lying, God said to him, verse 27, he knew that that God said that the land of promise was nothing to him. Physical security, freedom from their slavery was nothing to him. Nothing at all. Uh, verse 16, I'm just going to paraphrase. How will people know that we are a separate people, different from all the nations of the earth, unless you destroy us? And so God's response, verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have been a grace in my sight. And Moses, and I know you, and you know me. And so we have Moses pleading and mediating on behalf of Israel, and God says this to him. Folks, do the thing that Moses had asked of God. His presence such a powerful story that I think all of us would agree is a parallel to what our circumstances are. It has done for us. For all of us. We know these things for us. The covenant that God has set for us. All of us have taken ailments. Maybe not physical like Israel did, but spiritual. Metaphorical ailments that we have. And use them and set that false yoke against them in one way or the other. It might not be the way that we conventionally think of religion, but it could be, you know, hobbies or jobs or relationships or pride or false ideals, falsely security. Our own wisdom. And they all work these things out to try to push us up and separate the presence of God. So with this story, I think there's a lot of implications for us as Christians today with this story that we saw from Israel. In fact, as I was reading and studying this, I thought to myself, I don't know why I'm doing this. There's so much here, I don't even know where to begin. So I did pick a few things that I felt would be pertinent to what this story shows us about the God that we serve. One of them is who is God to us. At the height of Israel's greatest probably was their greatest sin up until this point. God's grace was denied to them. Israel faced hostile extermination from God himself. They had breached the covenant right after they had agreed to it. And God just lets them wipe them all out and start over with Moses. Of course, they're also facing this new distant relationship with God. And despite this, God still provides a way for Israel to come to Him. Even though it requires them to come back and ask for help again. What is interesting is that even before this, go back and read the story, not even the priests, and not even Joshua and those individuals, Caleb, none of them could come up the full counsel of God. Only Moses. Not the official high priest, okay, but Moses, that supreme leader of God's presence, could 
temporary tabernacle. The temporary tabernacle for the other people. We see that God still provides love. But it took people to keep doing what they were doing I don't think there was a perfect world. There's two. One of them was God the Holy God, and we can't we can't hang out with people living in sin like that. We can't no longer live. But secondly, I think it's a part of this faith is that word wants to be faithful to keep. We learn to see the genuine seeking of God in His presence. God's grace is also seen in this story by how He provided Israel with the manna. You go to the New Testament and you see the comparison offered. Hebrews, you see it Psalms, among other places. You see the comparison of Jesus with Moses. And it's obviously a story like this that will shadow what Jesus will provide. In our sin, being truly destined for death, undeserving of it, and alienated at birth from the very presence of God, we were provided the man of birth, and not his mediator, but his faithful servant. And that is Jesus Christ. He found favor, like Moses found favor, found favor in the Father's eyes and chose us. So we too can be spared that favor. This is the manifest grace, the forgiveness of sin and the ability to have joy that comes from God. Hebrews, the third chapter, verses 10 and 11 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostles and the high priests that I would confess Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been crowned worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. As Moses indeed was faithful in all his house, the servants, their testimony and their tents to be to be speaking the same thing of one another. But Christ is the head over the same house, the house we are. Repentance here, genuine warning 
is because not only have we fully experienced that God was going to be representative, and now he's not because of this sin, but the funny thing is, when you go back and you read Matthew, chapter 20, all of them say, God, you made of idolatry, sin, could be the misuses, and I think there's a lesson here, transformed into misuses of worldly value. Here's what I mean by that. A little bit later, after this story, when we read in Exodus 36 chapter, verses 20 through 23, we see that there's been some reconciliation. Now they're going to proceed with the plans to construct the tabernacle. In verse 20 of Exodus 35, we say, And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, when everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing, and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle, and for all its service for its separate adornment. They came, both men and women, as many had a willing heart, and brought earrings, and noses, rings, and necklaces, all jewelry of gold, that is, every man who made an offering of the gold of the Lord. No doubt, many of these ornaments were the very ones that Israel, after chapter 36, got to put away. Many of which could have maybe had to be marked with idolatry or sin. They probably, most likely, as I mentioned earlier, because they plundered the Egyptians to some extent as they left Egypt. So a lot of this probably did come from Egypt. These are ornaments as they are, you know, given to uh, construct the Jewish school tabernacle, we learn that they brought them as an offering to Moses as a sacrifice to the Lord because it's something that was worthy of God's worship. And I think that there's a lesson in that for us this morning. No matter how busy, no matter what your employment conduct is like, Every child of God, every single one of you, has the ability to be that precious blood of Christ, to be that robe of praise of God. There's no sin, there's no lifestyle, there's nothing that's greater than our Savior, that His sacrifice for us. Every child of God, no matter what happens, we recognize He has the power to save us. given to the production of the different parts of the tabernacle probably were different it could have been you know you know materials that possibly could have been converted to other things one of the big major ornaments was both sides all of us every one of us have the ability to be the true and the perfect 
just as the daughter-in-law in that story of Eli, the high priest, how she gave birth after this happened, after the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. And what did she do? would have read about the weeping and the recording of the, the catastrophic uh, activity of the Babylonians and Judah and how the temple in Jerusalem slowly but surely obliterated the temple. As Ezekiel the king chapter 13 says, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and the spirit of the Lord consumed the temple. These individuals reading God's gospel would have known exactly
Thank you. 